0: Blacking out because when you truly black out the next day, what it would, it's the very first thing people say when they black out the next day.
1: Like, oh, I have no idea what happened. No
0: idea. Day. They have no memory. Yeah. And they're trying to search for those memories. But your hippocampus, when it is drowned in alcohol, you are actually not creating any memories. Right. You're not creating. So you are trying to then the next day, it's like searching on the computer for a file that's not there, it's never been there. Vaping has become the Gen Z and millennial fad, and students are truly underestimating what is categorized as just one drink. From caffeine to alcohol to smoking, Eliza Fitzpatrick, North Carolina's SAD coordinator, joins the podcast to chat on all of this. So, let's do it. Too many days in the darkness,
2: without a glimpse of the light. Running tired and broken and scared, but I swear I'll never give up the fight. I see you broken and be had pulled down over your eyes. Every party wants to surrender, darling, you were meant to survive. With every...
0: I can't think of a closer subject that comes to mind very first, when I think of students against destructive decisions, then substance use, it's prevention, it's attempt at moderation, I'm sure, as you grow, especially, and the attempt to at limiting in its absolute form when people are in their teen years. And I can only imagine the work that is cut out for you already to do Because that is on a massive scale, if you're talking high school and college and how things have changed and with social media, how has that been for you so far?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, every level of education has a different problem, right? Like when you're talking to middle schoolers, you're probably not looking at hard drugs as much as you might be in college. But for them, it might be vaping, which is more of an epidemic now before it was smoking cigarettes. And we had kind of eradicated that for the most part and people understood just how bad it was for you. But now we're into vaping and e-cigarettes and that's a huge problem for middle schoolers. Isn't that such a
0: tragedy too that like we thought we were over cigarettes. We're like, all right, cigarettes are gonna die out by themselves. And then this cigarette that just became trendy just completely took over just as much as like the camel cigarettes did back in the day.
2: Well,
1: yeah. And kids don't know how addicting they can be they don't really understand what they're doing and they don't think of it. They're like, it's not a cigarette. Like it's nicotine based. It's it's just like a little plastic stick that I put in my mouth. And for a lot of people, it's just like a habit. Like they don't even think about it. It's something to do with their hands. Um, and it is such tragedy when we think about how kids don't really smoke cigarettes as much as they do. And there's such a negative connotation. And like you see someone smoking a cigarette and it's gross we think of it as gross but vaping is totally different they've got cute fun flavors the and flavors and are stuff. amazing yeah yeah which is marketing to kids with those flavorings doesn't help
0: a huge cloud of smoke goes up in the air too and i really think too that vaping and cigarettes are the reason people get addicted on them is one and the same because we always think about the chemicals that go in them but i think about you know when you smoke a cigarette you flick it on the ground step on it there's that feeling of like i don't want to say power but there's a there's a feeling that of of goodness that people are experiencing especially when the movie stars are doing it and and it's being in the limelight like that and then same thing with vaping everyone else vapes they look cool doing it and then you feel cool smoking it and blowing out this humongous cloud of like sometimes even pure like white smoke Because it's designed now specifically for that trendiness to kind of keep going. Because that's, I feel like, is what holds people. Because if, if it was really looked uncool to do, nobody would do it, I feel like.
1: Right. Like, it was so popular. And that was, like you said, the thing that movie stars were doing. And it looks so cool when you're just, like, standing with a cigarette. And I really do feel like... We got to a point where that wasn't cool anymore and teens are starting to think like that's actually kind of gross and we're seeing the effects on people's teeth and their lungs and like you're seeing those things but then uh, cool puff smoke of air people are doing tricks with uh-huh. the air that they're breathing and it's just more dangerous and it's just a new thing but but that's exactly it is that once vapes are gone there's going to be something new to take their place too once that's uncool There's just going to be something else. So we're just always evolving and changing how we think about substance use, especially for our teens.
0: And how do you guys, what is your perspective on your approach of, okay, there's clear uh, substance substance use or people using it so much that it becomes a form of abuse of that um, product. Where do you guys come in? What is your approach where you go, okay, this is happening. This is taking over. How do we manage?
1: So I think like... um, Obviously, we are peer-to-peer. So we want students to be telling their friends, like, hey, this is doing damage. And I think that's how we're approaching this a little bit because it's hard to be an adult and stand at a teen and say, listen, in 20 years, you're going to regret this when you can't breathe and you've got all these issues. But it is so different when it's one of their friends that's like, hey, man, like, that's making me really uncomfortable. I don't want to be breathing that in. It's so different when it's a friend there telling you, hey, I care about your health. Like, I've noticed that you're doing this a lot. So that model of prevention with us works similar, similarly with drunk driving as it does with substance use.
0: Yeah, because the, the thing of, okay, this is going to happen to you in 20 years, I don't think catches people of, like, it's not going to cause them to change behavior, but it's the immediate effect. Yeah. And now that now that I think about it, I think what could really help, because I do you think it's male dominated or or is it even out of vaping is it more male or is it half and half
1: i feel like it evens out pretty yeah. well like i've ne- I've not seen like a great disparity between male and female usage of, of vapes and anyone in between really. i guess so
0: i feel like maybe i'm leaning more towards it's more male dominated just because i feel like men are more uh open and more like i don't want to say obnoxious with it but mm-hmm. like if you're at a restaurant they're the ones that are like blowing smoke and like there's a guy next to them or like a family next to them and they
2: don't care.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I've definitely seen that more in public maybe um, being in the college space. There's not as much consideration for that. So I think um, being younger, I just graduated college pretty recently. I used to seeing it everywhere. It is all over the place, but I do see that maybe in Um, older generations, that it is the men that tend to smoke more, especially in public spaces.
0: So I was going to say, all it would take, you could literally solve this overnight if it was male-dominated, just having women say, that's not cool,
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: that's disgusting, I'm going to stay away from it, and overnight, (laughs) (laughs) most men, if not all of them, would never do it again.
1: Right, like if women were like, ew, you smell bad. Then we get back to the the scents and stuff like that, where they're mango-flavored or something like that. So the puff of smoke doesn't smell like cigarette smoke. So it's it not doesn't cause that, like Robust. That. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. not off-putting like it used to be. So it's people don't think about secondhand smoke from vapes as much as they do maybe from cigarettes.
0: And why do you think people begin getting into substance use at an early age to where it almost starts to become to where it starts to become a problem? Because I guess, say you start like a six pack in someone's basement or something like that. Where do you guys come in? And also depending on obviously the age, like you had said earlier, depending on the age, you got different methodology on your approach. When does it come become a problem for those different age groups? Because I gotta say, in teens, you consider it always a problem if it's under 21. And in college, if somebody is over 21, when do you say this is probably a a problem?
2: So
1: I was very surprised to go to middle school chapters, and they're telling me that their biggest problem is vaping, because I thought of it primarily being like high schoolers getting vapes from their older siblings and stuff like that. And I didn't really think about the fact that middle schoolers, people that are 12, 13, and even younger than that, starting to vape and I do think that in a way that can be a coping mechanism for students, whether that's things going on at home, people at home are doing that, or if it's just to fit in, where they so desperately want to feel included and feel like they fit in with their peers and they think that that's the way to do it, which is where our programming of saying, hey, it's not cool to vape, it's actually cool to do the opposite and help other people stop vaping that's where we kind of need to advance our programming so people don't feel like they need to vape or pick up anything like that just to feel cool or to feel like they fit in because there are people out there that will like you and want to be your friend even if you don't vape or do drugs
0: yeah that's a good point point. and do you see a crossover then of people vaping and then getting into other different substances of like marijuana or drinking and and starting to abuse some of those substances
1: I would say that they're certainly related. There's a lot of research studies and and stuff out there from people that are way smarter and more educated than I am on those specific topics. But people that are more susceptible to peer pressure in that way are going to continue to be more susceptible in the future when their friends are trying to get them to drink a lot or to try other substances they're going to be more likely to be like yeah i want to be cool i want to keep doing this i don't want to lose my friends and if they've already got those friends that are pressuring them into doing these other things it's a lot easier uh for them to fall into those kinds of so, use patterns so you take
0: the approach of trying to encourage other people to like not only not not only to abstain from that those behaviors but then also to encourage others how are you guys able to do that because it is very very difficult for anybody to stand up to somebody who's like you know we're just go against the green um but especially teens the younger you are i feel like the more susceptible you are to becoming a follower and what are some of the tactics you guys have is it like providing already a platform of supporters or
1: Yeah, so we have, like we talked about a little bit, our Shifting Gears program that's all about um, drug use and driving, but our STAR students that really care about this kind of stuff, our students that have been affected by maybe a drug user in their family or someone died of lung cancer because they smoked their whole life or, or they vaped and now they've got other issues and stuff, those STAR students that are very passionate about that specific part of our mission are very, very effective in getting other people to follow them. Uh, because like I said, you don't realize how, just how effective messaging from teens is for other teens.
0: Yeah, and do basically just influence.
1: Yeah, the, the same way that they're gonna be influenced to start using, they can be influenced to stop. When they're seeing these horror stories like we said tragedies often inspire change so if we're talking about we want to prevent this tragedy because we care about you as a person then we can start moving in the right direction of keeping people away from those behaviors in the first place
0: and what do you think really is like a root cause of why people are they get into drinking or when drinking that no longer becomes moderation. Because I gotta think when, of like an abuse of a substance, like everyone can use a substance, you go to the liquor store or or grab some beers, you're not abusing it. But then when it becomes abuse, where are you seeing from your experience that shift to that next level where people start flirting with it and then they cross over and it then becomes a habit and now it's become a habit. Now it's like, all right, it's not, you can still function in life. I mean, it's not like you're uh where well, you're a bum and homeless now, but that's a road that will end soon for you in terms of progressing as a human being, where I mean, five years, 10 years of you using half your nights of the week, where you're drinking, what that does health-wise into your brain, into your social life too. I mean, it's very hard to even have a relationship where are you seeing where that crosses over? And then what's the approach you guys try to take with helping people and, and driving that? Because I gotta think you're then past that point of you know, it's it's not cool to do that, you know, it's it's not cool to partake in that. Like they're past that now. They've already crossed that line, they've accepted it. What's the next step there then?
1: Yeah. So like I was talking about with some college students. For a lot of people, it's very social, where they get to college, they get to high school, and they think that partying is just what you do, drinking heavily is what you do. They don't understand the effects that that has on your body. We have some people that maybe grew up with alcoholics that were parents or might be more susceptible to addiction and things like that, which can be difficult as well. But you definitely see a shift in culture when students go to college and they think that they're supposed to party. They're supposed to be blacking out, they're supposed to be doing all these things cuz that's all the rage. Like like, "Oh, like I totally blacked out last night. Like I have no idea what happened. Like I totally did all these weird things." But then you should never be doing that. Like if you're to the point where you're blacking out when you're drinking, you're way past damage to your body. Like Moderation, obviously, not alcohol is not good for your body, but socially, college students don't understand that while they might be doing something for a year, two years, three years, four years, to find acceptance with their peers is gonna affect them for the rest of their life. Because in their freshman year of college, if they start drinking every single night and it's how they get to bed, where they're just like passing out every night, or They like to go partying. That becomes a habit. And then from there, it gets to a point where they don't need the social interaction to spark the drinking.
0: Well, I think what's a problem, too, is that is their very first introduction to alcohol. So their introduction to alcohol is that. That's the standard where you just drink six to ten drinks at least in a night, and then you you do end up blacking out. And if that is the introduction and then... That is really sustained in your mind until you are retaught otherwise, which teaching something new and reteaching something are entirely two separate beasts. Mm-hmm. One is so much easier than the other, which is that introduction where, you know, you do just have like one, two, if it's, you know, three, it's it's it depending on time and what you're eating and and um, what the ABV is of what you're drinking, too, goes into account on the occasion, too. But most people are not... in introduced to drinking alcohol until college, which is then you're talking blacking out, which when you look into the different types of how different types of ways that alcohol really affects you, blacking out is really scary because that it's the hippocampus that affects your memory, which is really the most important part that takes place in blacking out in the part of your brain, because your brain gets soaked. With alcohol and it's trying to process it out, but it can't process it out as quick as you're intaking it, which is what happens with blacking out. Because when you truly black out, the next day, what it what it's the very first thing people say when they black out the next day.
1: Like, oh, I have no idea what happened. No
0: idea. Day. They have no memory. Yeah. And they're trying to search for those memories, but your hippocampus, when it is drowned in alcohol, you are actually not creating any memories. Right. You're not creating. So you are trying to then the next day it's like searching on the computer for a file that's not there it's never been there Mm -hmm. and you might actually have some sort of um oh i remember going to that bathroom or i remember you know going to the food truck and the only times you were reason why you remember that is because you went from a dark club or a dark basement party into a very bright bathroom and your brain like it's adrenaline goes whoa Where are we? And then you might remember that sliver or that sliver thought of like smelling the food truck. And that brings you not to a sober moment, but to a second. And then you remember slivers of that. But true blacking out, there are no memories. You don't create anything. So it's basically like you're almost out of consciousness for the whole night and you've borrowed time from the next day. So now the next day you're feeling awful.
1: Well, in the way that it's almost praised. Like people say that they blacked out and they're proud of it. Oh, it's an accolade. And it's something that, that they're like, I drank so much. I went so hard. I partied. I blacked out. And we have presentations that we give to college students because you don't realize that so many different things affect the way that alcohol affects you. Your weight, what you had to eat, when you had to eat, what medications you take. People don't realize that like ibuprofen and like over-the-counter meds and stuff you might take for your allergies affects the way that alcohol affects you. Your mindset affects the way that alcohol affects you. And people aren't taking this into consideration. They're not sitting down and thinking, okay, I need to eat something first before I drink. Some people see that as a challenge where they're like, oh, I can get drunk quicker because I didn't eat today. And that's even more dangerous because now you're tearing into your stomach lining and you're messing with your digestive system. and you're not gonna feel good. But again, it is like an accolade where people are are proud of this, that I didn't eat anything all day, so now I'm gonna get drunk really quickly.
0: Yeah, there does become the challenge. I know of someone who played college basketball, right? And in college, you're broke. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Most people are broke. And playing college basketball had a very unhealthy eating habit, very unhealthy, poor dieting. Barely ate. And this is somebody, you know, who drinks, I mean, could drink 15 beers, be fine. Mm -hmm. Skinny guy. But he one day, and I was, I'm not going to lie, I was impressed. I was impressed because of what he put his body through and was fine. You're talking, drank a little bit the night before, played a college basketball game just off of like a small breakfast. And a college basketball game, how much calories are you putting out of your body especially when you're a guard, run up and down the floor, up and down the floor, up and down the floor. Ends up, after the game, goes to the clinic to donate, I think it's fusion. Um, it's it's, it's um, not like donating blood, but you donate, I forget what it's called. I think it's like fusion, you're fusion in your body or something, where they, they give you like $80 for donating. Oh, like platelets? Yeah, yeah. Something like along those
1: plasma. Lines.
0: Plasma. That's it. Plasma. I'm not fusion. I don't know where I got fusion from, but plasma. He was donating plasma. So after the game, he donates plasma. Doesn't eat all day. Uh-huh. Starts drinking the night of that. So now you're talking, you haven't eaten anything since that morning of what your body has gone through then. Now you're starting drinking. And I mean, he, he, later on that night, he had some food. He was fine. Like this is not going to end in a tragedy. But when you when you just talk about the amount of stress that you put your body through mm-hmm. to do that, I mean, I was impressed just that our, the human body can go through that. Because how much, how many calories did he burn, he donated from his own body. Mm-hmm. That's insane. But he was still able to then drive on. Now, imagine if he didn't do any of that, what he would been able to have done probably on the court or in school without putting his body through that because he still could have enjoyed himself but to go put his body through all of that what he could have done because there's no one on earth who could tell me that he would be able to he would have played at the same level or live life the same level if he had moderated all of that.
1: Right. And I don't think people understand how dangerous alcohol is. Like in the same way we were talking about cigarettes, how we see just how dangerous that can be. We don't often recognize the effects of alcohol and overdosing on alcohol. I used to work with um, a buddy that was an EMT and he would help me give presentations. presentations. Yeah. He would help me give some presentations when I was talking about substance use in college. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me was that Once it gets to your liver, we can't do anything for you. So if you're overdosing on alcohol, the best they can do is pump your stomach your stomach and hope that enough didn't get to your liver to shut everything down. But if there's nothing in there and everything's already been absorbed, all they can do is watch you die and make you comfortable. And that's scary that people are using blacking out as something that they're proud of. And what they're doing is destroying their body, getting close to overdosing on alcohol and they don't even realize it. They don't care in a way that they should.
0: Well, because I, I don't think that they know of any other standard. Yeah. That is the standard. hmm And I think really the key to bringing things more moderately, because alcohol and a lot of substance use is almost ingrained in a lot of social institutions, where if you don't partake in them, it's almost like you're an outcast, because you go to a happy hour... Especially, we're here in New York City.
2: Hmm.
0: When you get out of work, you go to happy hours. And that is where career growth progresses, is at the happy hours. It really is. Because that's when people finally feel all right to start expressing all of those microaggressions they've kept in during work. Now at the happy hours, they're spewing them out. And it kind of allows a little healthy exchange of communication a little bit. Because at least they're expressing it. Mm -hmm. And they're getting it out. But it is with the use of a little bit of alcohol. So it's almost like, all right, so the goal may be not to eliminate it, but to kind of um, reestablish that, those those boundaries almost or reestablish a new standard because you can't go to those happy hours and black out. People do. People do. And it gets horrible for them, you know, when they start spewing things that they should never have said. Right. But I really think that a, huge, a major way to bring that to a moderate rated level is because when you get older it becomes uncool to black out at happy hours Mm -hmm. it becomes uncool so people now don't do it because it's not cool so you do see a change of behavior over time because it is not the trendy thing to do and going back to the beginning now it's almost like how do you make it the uncool thing to do earlier in life because then you're getting to the root you're getting to the root of okay it's now no longer cool to do this so i'm not gonna do it so like it's almost like the golden question i feel like at those ages between like probably 14 15 because they're seeing the older kids do it if they're not partaking in it that young to like probably 25 26 27 when they get out Mm -hmm. of school or they're in that like first couple of years of career, how do we make that uncool?
1: Well, and like you said, it is uncool when you're older. But the problem is, is that when you make that a habit when you're younger, you just don't do it in public anymore. You black out on your own because you're addicted. And that is just another serious topic that isn't really addressed as much starting in college is people that are addicted to alcohol, but it's just partying, it's just being in your 20s, and it's something that's cool to do. And what I found from doing presentations is that there's a very different response from different people, right? There are some groups of people, when I'm talking about how alcohol can really affect you, that they're like surprised and very engaged and seem to be taking in the information. But then there are some people that are snickering in the back or making fun of me or laughing because I'm telling them to not play drinking games and that drinking games are dangerous, but they're just like, oh, whatever, like, you know, it's fun, we like to do this. So that's really hard is finding the people that maybe are more engaged and care a little bit more and helping it make like a social cultural shift in the college space and I think COVID definitely slowed down a lot of party culture, but it's come back swinging. I mean, people are still going out. They're doing new things, new games, new drinks that people are trying. So it is just this catch-22 of stopping it when they're young, but then even going before that and trying to ingrain in them without nagging too much to where they just completely shut down and ignore everything that we're saying.
0: Yeah, there's Lindsay Kasuba, um, who I had on the podcast a couple episodes ago. She said something really intriguing, which was whenever there's a bad habit, it's driven by a deep emotional need. And it makes a lot of sense because there's a need and with any need, it's trying, you're trying to fulfill that need as a human, whether that's anything, even like something like hungry, I mean, hungry, you're trying to fulfilled no longer being hungry Mm -hmm. so you think of alcohol okay it's a bad habit drinking is a bad habit when you're doing it consistently and or a lot of it consistently so where's that it's almost like the holistic approach you Mm -hmm. know where you're, you're just like not factoring in okay it's bad to drink stop drinking you know like that's like the the opposite of holistic approach where you're just like it's that's a one issue when think of it more like holistically Taking into account where that person is emotionally, where their health is, where they are, where they are physically, as well their diet and everything that goes into their body, and where they are really in life too, just taking that approach on and thinking of it in that light kind of helps open up the conversation of, well, why? What is fueling that bad habit? Which is really asking the question of, what is that emotional need that they need? fulfilled and now they're trying to look elsewhere to artificially fill it
1: right and like we talked about a little bit some of it is people just not knowing what else to do right like high schoolers were telling them do not drink at all you're underage that's not okay but when you get to college there's not a lot of programs that say it's okay to drink but here's how you drink responsibly and that's kind of what we've done with some of our college chapters where we're Acknowledging that some students are of age to drink, but you need to know how alcohol affects your body. You need to be in a place where you're understanding it that yes, it is a very social thing, but you need to understand how to be safe and smart. You need to know when to have a designated driver. You need to know all of these things, and there's not like a class where someone's telling, like, drinking 101. That's not a thing. Well, drinking
0: one-on-one is the frat party.
1: That is the frat party. (laughs) That's where these problems are coming from. And then we're saying, okay, here's a designated driver toolkit where it reminds you to make sure you have everyone's contact information if something happens or a backup plan if your designated driver has to go home. And that's in a way where we're thinking that some people aren't in a state where they're prepared to drink they're not thinking things through in the night and then they get caught in a sticky situation where they've drank too much and they're not sure what to do or their designated driver went home and they're stranded and and don't know what to do, which is why we want to equip people early on saying, hey, if you're underage, be the designated driver for your other friends. Even if you've had a glass of wine, if you think that you feel fine after a few drinks, just let someone else drive. If there's someone else there, Why not? And just kind of building that mentality from the beginning so that when they do start drinking, when they are of age, they're already equipped with this in their toolbox and they know all of the things that they should be doing when they're thinking about a night out drinking.
0: Well, what's most dangerous too, is when people go out and just say, I'm just going to have one or two and then I'll drive when they go out with that, that is the worst mentality you can have because it's almost like planning on a mistake because it's never it's almost never one or two Mm -hmm. and even if it is just one or two too you don't i mean you get you order an old-fashioned you're getting two to two and a half ounces of bourbon Mm -hmm. and that is the equivalent to like three beers it could be more than that depending on people don't realize too the type of liquor that is in a lot of these drinks because a bourbon A lot of times comes with a heavy um, or an old fashioned, excuse me, comes with a heavy bourbon, which is 86 proof, could be 90 proof. There's Mm -hmm. some there's some bourbons out there that are sold on the shelf with every other type of bourbon. It's next to the um, the Bullets, the Elijah Craig's. It's sold next to all these other bottles and it's one hundred and twenty five proof. And you see these brand names. They're out there. And they're just like everything else, but if you don't read that label that shows 125 proof, I was just at the store the other day looking at different, different spirits, and 125 proof I saw. And if I don't look at that, I'm done. I'm done. You can, you can say I'll have one or two drinks, but you're done. You go to a very high class place, mm-hmm. They have very their drinks are very good because they're very strong, because the proof is very strong. A martini, a lot of times it's just so funny because people think of martinis as like a girly drink. Mm-hmm. And when they refer to girly drinks, they refer to it as not a lot of alcohol in it. So they'll talk, like when guys are talking to guys, they'll say, Oh, that's such a girly drink, meaning there's not a lot of alcohol in it. When it, a martini is one of the strongest drinks you can have, it has two to two and a half ounces of pure spirit. Whereas vodka or gin, one and a half to two ounces, and then half an ounce to 0.75 ounces of vermouth, which mm-hmm. is. liqueur so it's like there's no mixer in there there's no lemon juice there's no lime it's not a margarita that is pure alcohol you're drinking and if you have one or two of those you're gonna blow like a 0.1 i mean you're you have one of those you're above a 0.08 just are every single time especially i would say like that's driven as like like i would say a girly drink Mm -hmm. and by body mass affecting where you are mentally with Your alcohol intake. You know, if if, if a female has one to two martinis, they're going to be feeling it, and they're legally speaking not going to probably be able to drive.
1: Right, and our bodies are so different as well. Some people don't realize there might be some men that maybe can't drink as much as women. There might be women that obviously we're we're all built differently. Your weight, everything about you, affects how alcohol affects you. And when we talk about drinking, we want to emphasize that a beer is gonna have less alcohol than a glass of wine. A glass of wine is gonna have less alcohol than liquor, but in less quantities, right? Like you can have a 16 ounce beer and it's still less than a six ounce glass of wine, which is still less than two ounces of liquor and People don't think about that when they're pouring their drinks, right? They're just trying to get as much in as they can, pouring something sweet on top so that they don't taste it, so they can just get drunk quicker. And that's the thing is people really aren't considering, they're like, oh, it's a cocktail. A martini's a cocktail, right? It's, it's the same as if I got an old fashioned, but it's really not. And they're not considering what goes in it. And sometimes it's because people don't know. They don't know exactly what goes in it. They're not behind the bar. They're not familiar with, you know, what actually is in their drinks.
0: Yeah, and that I was just talking to someone the other day about their use of even, like, something like caffeine mm-hmm. in, um, in their pre-workout. And she's telling me about her what she takes and, like, you know, once in a long while I'll have a little bit of caffeine if I'm really pushing after, like, nights of really not getting the best sleep but still have to meet a high quality of putting, you know, a high quality of work. And she's telling me, I think it was three hundred milligrams of caffeine every workout in her pre-workout. And she's telling me this, telling me this. We walk away, right? I thought I was like, wait a second. She's five foot five, if that, and and a skinny mini. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, thinking about the the difference because I was originally thinking of equal when somebody's telling me i'm I'm imagining okay what's 300 milligrams do to me i'm like oh okay like i would i would be feeling it for sure but i wouldn't be maybe at the edge of like not being able to function at all but then afterwards i'm thinking oh my gosh her there's almost a way she's almost got to be punching the wall towards like her heart beating out of its freaking chest and then gotta be at that point if you're doing that every single day so long-term effects of that, but thinking in body mass, I mean, really, in th- the relationship with that and alcohol is humongous. And then like before with the plasma mm-hmm. and the lack of nutrients that you have in your body to begin with plays a huge role.
1: Right. And caffeine is a drug. People don't think of caffeine as a drug. They do People not. People don't think of alcohol as a drug, but it all falls under the scope of the definition of what a drug is. So we don't think of caffeine as a drug. We don't think of it as alcohol as a drug. Sometimes we mix them. Vodka Red Bulls, we mix those things. And that is so dangerous. Your body is going through so many different things. It's, again, it's just something that we don't think about or talk about enough. And it is so normal for people to say, like, oh, I had a monster energy drink. Or I had this other, you know, protein drink that has... 300 milligrams of caffeine in it and people don't really understand what that's doing to their body long-term. They just need an energy energy boost, a kick, something to do right now, but long-term, mixing those things together is not good.
0: Well, that emotional need, right, Mm -hmm. that people might have that drives bad decisions, I could give a perfect example from my own experience as to what happened to me and when I think of, okay, that happened did i have an emotional need definitely did tried to fulfill it artificially completely and completely wrecked myself on it where it was lat um it was a it was last year it was a while ago where or over a year ago i think at this point um, working for a corporation corporate slave nine to six miserable um on my way out though you know i'm finding uh, trying to find other you know trying to find a way out of it, and going through a lot, right, going through a lot, so I have an emotional need, you have an emotional need when you're in that, you're not feeling purposeful in your job, everyone's gone through job transition, so I'm not the only one with that, everyone knows what I'm talking about, where you're just like, you know, I need this, but I don't want it anymore, you know, where's the need out? and get on, go to, went to bed late, wasn't drinking or anything, went to bed late though, Stressful times. Get up early for work. You want to feel good, right? So what do you do? On your way to work, you're miserable. What do you do? You have caffeine. Mm-hmm. You have caffeine. That morning, I to happened to have a lot of caffeine. Well, you said This brought to memory when you said that caffeine is a drug. Because really, we should, when people get pulled over, we should almost be doing tests on them about the amount of caffeine in them. Because I had a lot of caffeine with nothing to drink. I think I just... Nothing to eat or drink that morning. And I think I was just nervously drinking it as I was getting ready for work. And I just had so much in it. So I was revved up, put on the headphones, got on the motorcycle. Work is eight minutes. Crashed it. Halfway between my place and work. And it was a thousand percent. A thousand percent because of the caffeine. But I'm actually wrong with saying that because I just blamed the caffeine for it, right? Well, what was the driving factor behind the high intake of caffeine? The deep emotional need that I sought caffeine to then replace that need that I had. So it's like where people are in life, what is that emotional need? And I think... Knowing that or reflecting within ourselves to understand that, try to make a change, can then maybe weed out what we originally try to attack, which is the alcohol. It's you, You've got a drinking problem. You've got a drug problem. Well, those are great questions to ask, but are you getting to the nucleus? You know, are you getting to that really root of like, well, what's driving that? And then what's driving that? And I think because that was really it. Like, I ended up leaving. Really... Got into a better space, um, and you end up not relying on caffeine mm-hmm. to then get up. And I wasn't a, a caffeine guy either. I mean, I, I'm still not, but just that morning, bad morning, really sorted out. And, you know, like they say, shit happens. It, I mean, it did. It did.
1: Yeah, and your emotions are so powerful. I mean, we don't consider that enough as well, right? In the same way we talk about peer pressure and students feeling so badly that they need to fit in, that they're vaping and they're drinking very heavily the fitting in, yep, of an emotional need. And then the same way of you getting on your motorcycle, I, I bet you weren't really thinking about driving. You were thinking about getting to where you needed to go. You were tired, you were hopped up on caffeine, you were in this emotional place where you were just tired and drained. You weren't thinking about every second that you were on the motorcycle and just driving and being present there. You were thinking, man, I got to go back to this 9 to 6 job that I hate and I, I just want yeah. to get out of.
0: You think about it, what's your favorite time of year?
1: Oh, my gosh, the fall.
0: Yeah, fall, winter, the holidays. The holidays. Love Christmas. Everybody who knows me, Christmas guy till he dies. Yep. Right? It, it, was, it was last August when that accident happened. I'm driving. My favorite type of music to listen to is Christmas music because it brings up good memories about Christmas. It makes you feel good. Never listen to it outside of Christmas time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what nut job listens to Christmas music, especially <laughs> in the summertime? I was listening to Leanna Lewis's Christmas song, um, One More Sleep, which is, in my opinion, tops Mariah Carey yeah. in Christmas time. Leanna Lewis is. One More Sleep is the crown of Christmas. So if anyone's listening, that is top dog for any Christmas. But anyway, I'm listening to that Christmas song on the way in my my, um, AirPods in listening to a Christmas song. All caffeined up in August, driving in Miami, driving to work. Why am I listening to Christmas music? It is because that is reminding me of a better time. So you know, fulfilling that need really, you know, because other than that, I mean, you you think, well, he's got something wrong with him if he's bumping to Christmas music in August in Miami.
1: (laughs) And that can be that can be huge for people too. Is there's so much judgment, right? Like you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I'm crazy because I'm listening to Christmas music and in July and August, and it's like, no, you're not. You're doing something that you enjoy. If it was anyone else listening to a song that they really liked. It's like fine it's something that they like it's something they enjoy but that judgment and feeling judged is another motivating factor like we said with wanting to fit in people don't do things that they love or that bring them happiness because they're afraid of being judged by their peers where we're going back to that peer-to-peer model when we have students that are supportive of other students and just are saying that we want you to be safe we want you to arrive alive we want you to take care of yourself and we care about you genuinely in that way, there's not a fear of judgment. When you're around sad students, you're not afraid of being judged. You'll listen to Christmas music in August and you're not like, oh, I'm totally crazy for doing that. You'll get your Halloween decorations out on August 1st because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that <laughs> I did that and I love it. It's made me happy and yeah. I enjoy seeing it. So, and that's where we kind of make a space for that with our students and through our programming
0: yeah that's a good uh a good thought and really trying to get some of those leaders to embrace the cool side of doing better things and living a better lifestyle Mm -hmm. because i feel like people are just going to follow regardless and if it's good or bad they're going to follow so it's almost like reaching out to leaders and people who already have an established community of people that like them and trying to get them on board because people will if people will follow regardless it's like all right well then we really have to get these leaders in the communities or people who are looked up to as the top people that want to be doing these behaviors
1: right where maybe when i was talking about with those presentations where some people snicker and make fun maybe there's someone in front of them that's like hey stop that's rude that's it's someone to shut them down and then maybe they think about their mindset and they're like They're right, like that was rude, that was disrespectful. And then they become more like the other people that were really intent on listening and genuinely care about their peers and making sure that they understand everything that they need to know before they make a bad decision.
0: Well, it's it's also too, just performance. It's almost like making making it cool to perform at a high level rather than making it uncool to like, or making it cool to just like, I mean, being gen z and millennials here like it's almost the norm now to not care like we're like the generation of like not caring like oh i don't care you know and that takes on its own effect of like devaluing a lot of things But that make a little bit of sense
1: it did well <laughs> i'm kind of moving towards like we have more people now that are very open about sobriety on that yes media. that's perfect where they're talking about, I had a problem with alcohol when I was in college. So now in my late 20s, I've decided to be alcohol free. Then we get into what we were talking about earlier, where it's drinking is such a social thing. So you go out and you say you're not drinking and people ask you why, and you have to have an explanation for people. But with us being so open on social media about sobriety being more common, especially Gen Z and millennials on TikTok, Instagram, I mean. Mr. Beast is like openly sober and he said that. I mean, that's the role model that we have for our kids going forward, that it's okay to be sober, it's good to be sober. I did these things, I regretted this person where I was just following a social norm in college and drinking super heavily. I hated myself when I was like that and I didn't wanna be like that but I needed to fit in and now I'm sober for myself and kind of taking that upon themselves to address that in their own lives.
0: I don't know if you've ever heard of the nonprofit called moderation management. Mm-hmm. They do a great job of reestablishing what guidelines are, you know, of, of of the standard of when you are above the level of moderation and when you're below it, and when you're flirting with having a problem and right in between. And really is a, I would say, lenient and very, very liberal standards on it where Men, I think it was about 14 drinks a week. And women, about 9 or 10 drinks a week. So it sounds very high. But if you think about moderation, that's for men, probably, you could say two drinks, two drinks a day, which sounds a lot. Or And then with women, that's about one drink a day and then two drinks on the weekend.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Which... Putting it that way doesn't seem that much because glass of wine is a drink. I know a lot of times people don't consider wine a drink, but right. it like is a, a drink, guys. Red
1: wine is the healthy Yeah, alcohol. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: it's the water. Um, but that, if, you, if you're if worth that standard, you know, it's very easy, or I should never say it's very easy, but it's very, um, it's easier to put a plan in place to stay under that if you are struggling You know, is that being your dart that you're throwing as, okay, if I'm under 14 drinks a week as a guy, I'm drinking in moderation, which I think, honestly, with this, if you were to count how many drinks you do have over the course of the week, if you're just somebody who kind of rolls with the punches with society, most people are probably flirting around right at that moderation level or more because that's one and a half ounces of liquor or one beer and when you have a mixed drink when you have a margarita you're getting one and a half ounces of tequila if not two depending on the place with some triple sec and a lot of other drinks come with like the martinis with vermouth like a martini you're talking right there is two yeah. two and a half drinks alone and most people would say i just had one drink no 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 no, no. no. you've had two drinks if you've had a martini Or or more than two.
1: And when you're out with friends, it's rare that you're just having one drink, right? You're going to sit there, you're going to talk for a while, you're going to get more than one, right? And some people even binge drinking, where college students, maybe they're not drinking as much during the week, but they're going out and partying, and they're having six cups of jungle juice, and then the next night, they're partying too, so it's it doesn't seem like a lot, but like you said, when people get down to the nitty gritty and they start to count and consider how much they actually do drink, they're gonna find that they're probably over that moderation level.
0: Yeah, and people too, who think, "Oh, I'm probably way under. How is that moderate 14 drinks a, a week? They're probably right there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's, it's good, we, a lot of times as society, are very receptive now to dieting and keeping track of our calories, how much we ate. And with alcohol, if you start doing that, you'll quickly realize really how much alcohol you're putting into your body each week and you'll go, oh, whoa. Mm. I'm glad that that standard is 14 drinks a week and nine, nine, nine or ten for a woman because' where a lot of, most people who do drink who would classify themselves as drinking recreationally on a chart are probably flirting on that line.
1: Yeah, or they say, I just drink socially or something like that. And then it's like, what does that really mean? Does that mean only when you're going out with a group of people? Does that mean a friend comes over and you're drinking? Are you blacking out? Again, back to that conversation of what is the level of drinking? What's the moderation? And when you're saying recreationally versus socially, that looks different for different people because we have different definitions, but our bodies are different too, So what might be social and acceptable, and maybe someone larger can handle, someone smaller, someone on a different medication, someone with a different mindset, alcohol is going to affect them completely differently. So maybe then the moderation for them is way below 14. Moderation for someone that shouldn't be drinking that same amount, who's not the the average man, the average woman, it's gonna be below that for them. And that's what's tricky with those kinds of standards is that everyone is so different.
0: What have you seen from a personal standpoint?
1: Uh, So I've had some family members that have struggled with addiction. Um, I just lost an aunt on my dad's side. She struggled with drug addiction her whole life. Um, It had been a while since I'd seen her because she'd struggled and my family had, had tried to work things out and help her. But that's kind of the problem with addiction is is there's a certain point where it becomes really hard even as family members to help people with that when they're not receptive to change. And and so it is hard because I hadn't seen her in a really long time because she was struggling with addiction and it was hard on our family and she didn't seem to want to get better. Yeah. But then seeing how it affects us now, you feel so guilty that maybe there was something extra that we could have done. Maybe the damage wasn't completely done. Maybe there was something that we could have helped her with moving forward, but making those decisions as to when people are too far gone or if they even want to change or if they even want to get better. It's really difficult when something happens and and they pass away and you just feel so much guilt
0: it's hard to see it over time too I'm sure yeah. you know because it's nothing that's slow it's just a it's just a decline that you try to put roadblocks in front of and you're like ah, oh, I mean what else I mean you feel guilty but really like what else do you think you could have done I mean it-
1: exactly well and so with her I actually have another aunt who's going through the same thing they both had strokes mini strokes and then They were finally admitted to the hospital. I had one that passed away because the damage was too far gone. And I've got one that's in hospice right now, Uh. relearning how to talk. And so seeing these two sides of it, I mean, neither is a good option, right? Like that's no way to live and to recover. And that's, again, what's so hard is that you see these effects, but addiction is so hard to break. So even if they want to get better, there's that little thing in the back of their head that is just not, it's not helping them. And it's hard to see them like that too when they're going through withdrawals. When you love someone, that's, I mean, you know that that's what they need to do to get better, but detoxing and seeing someone go through withdrawals is just as bad as seeing them like this because you love them. And then it comes to a point where that's straining on your life. Right? when these people are in these situations and they can't take care of their kids anymore. I've seen my grandparents take in um, my cousins because their mom just couldn't take care of them anymore. And then that's hard because it's disrupting someone else's life. And while they are trying to help you know, the person that's dealing with addiction, they have to want to be better. They have to make that step. You can push them towards it, But again, it's emotional and it's mindset. And that's where getting that mindset right before anything starts, before it spirals out of control is so, so important with our students.
0: Yeah, you're right with that. And I'm sorry to hear that, too. It's got to be awful to see because you're like, you know them from an entirely different lifetime where you're younger, like your aunts, you see them in one way when you're younger. And especially people, even if there was problems back then, you don't see them cause you're younger, you know, but then you're kind of more exposed to life as you get older and then you see them in that light. And then, I mean, that's gotta be hard having a family member struggle with that. And then you got multiple, especially, I mean, thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard, but it fuels what I do, right? I've, I've always cared about this kind of stuff, but having that personal connection is just a way that you connect with students and you say, this is why I care about this. Because a lot of times people aren't motivated unless something has happened to them or happened to someone around them. And if you know someone personally that that's happened to them, if you're able to tell that story and tell it effectively and talk to people, they do start to realize because it is hard to imagine that kind of thing, right? No one wants to imagine someone that they look up to as a kid that they didn't realize that the whole time they were growing up, this person was addicted to drugs, or this person was sneaking away to to drink alcohol or something. Like, you don't want to think about that, but you're right. When you get older, you get this reality check of this was going on this whole time. And that's something to kind of talk about with students when you have that home-hitting effect, where it's like, this could happen to you. Like, I'm talking here about the importance of being drug free and traffic safety. There are people in my family that don't get that message. And I've always been like this. Like, it's not like these things happened and then I cared about it. This is something that I've been passionate about throughout high school and throughout college. And now this is happening. So in a way it's like, you need to care about these things ahead of time before it gets too out of control. And you need to care about it for your friends too. So that nothing happens to them. They don't you don't want to have a home hitting effect. You don't want that to be the thing that mobilizes you to finally get going.
0: Yeah, and I love that you're able to do that too, because what it's almost becomes when something hits home, and as long as it didn't hit you personally and you're unable to survive that, you know, it hits home, either you're able to walk away from it or it's hit a family member, like in your case. I feel honestly like it's almost Your duty as a human being to then share that, to then have it as best as you can hit other people's homes for them to care about it enough so then it doesn't hit their homes. Because if nobody shares any of that, then eventually it just hits everyone's home and nobody shares anything. So then it's so hard to then contain.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's so important to talk, too, to talk Uh, about things. And when you've got those stories, telling them
0: yeah it's like the most important thing because people don't know about the dangers they're not going to be able to or feel it really feel the dangers because you have to feel it because it's like one thing to listen 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 to but you have to feel it in order for it to like drive behavior i guess so um thanks for all this yeah I, i appreciate it um you've been wonderful thank you for everything that you do and keep going at it um i wish you're your aunt the best too and support for you with with that because i know that can be so freaking difficult especially a family member especially a close family member mm-hmm. um so i, I wish you uh, hopeful wishes on that and keep spreading the word of how important it is
1: yeah thank you
0: yeah and um we'll link up down the road down the future and see mm-hmm. how much um people you've talked to and how hopefully they're just becoming more receptive and receptive to the messages that you send out there so um i i can't thank you enough thank you so much